Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, gun violence, sexual assault, and attempted murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The guru and the disciple are archetypes found throughout history. It's a clear relationship that we instantly understand. One side has immense knowledge to share with the world. The other wants to soak it all up, to learn. But what happens when the disciple becomes more powerful than the guru? Ma Anand Shila followed Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh for years. She was his personal secretary, his spokesperson, his confidant, and eventually, she started running the show. As Sheila's influence grew, she gained followers of her own, ones more devoted to her than their guru. But when enemies drew close, all that power went right to her head. She started to believe that she could get away with anything, even murder. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Sheila Bernsteel, or as she was known during the 80s, Ma Anand Sheila, the press secretary and spokesperson for the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. We'll explore how she met Bhagwan, rose through his ranks, and organized his commune's move to America. Then we'll watch as everything starts to spiral out of control. Next week, we'll follow Sheila as she grows more and more desperate to protect her people from outside threats, leading to the largest bioterrorist attack to ever take place on U.S. soil. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. 
but only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Our story starts in Baroda, India in 1949, when Ambalal and Mani Ben Patel welcomed their sixth child into the world, a daughter named Sheila. Ambalal was a spiritual man who had trained in Mahatma Gandhi's ashram, a type of Indian monastery. But after the religious leader was assassinated, Ambalal was at a loss. He didn't know what to do without someone to follow. Still, as Sheila and her siblings grew up, her father encouraged a spiritual lifestyle, but he didn't ascribe to traditional Indian culture. His children were free spirits, daring and promiscuous. Sheila and her sisters were known around town for hanging out with boys, which was frowned upon in their conservative neighborhood. And the entire family could often be caught sunbathing or swimming in the local watering hole, completely naked. Needless to say, the Patel family was a shock to the system for many of their neighbors. Sheila's father didn't care about the side eyes he got. He just wanted to stay true to himself and find that next great religious leader. He wanted his kids to experience the same thing he had felt as a young man, the same devotion, the same faith. And by the time Sheila was a teenager, he'd finally found one. His name was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and in Ambalal's eyes, he was nothing short of revolutionary. Bhagwan was a new breed of guru. He was hip, modern, and appealed to intellectuals. He wasn't afraid to speak truth to power. In fact, he was pretty provocative. Bhagwan's specific beliefs were hard to pin down, especially in these early days. He talked about spirituality, capitalism, and sexuality in ways that no Indian religious leader had before. But the main idea seemed to be that he believed one should live as fully as possible without being attached to anything. Where traditional gurus rejected material wealth and told their followers to live an austere life, Bhagwan argued you could be enlightened without having to reject all of the world's offerings. You could enjoy them, you just couldn't depend on them. This mentality was appealing to plenty of people, Ambalal among them. And so one day in 1968, he brought 16-year-old Sheila to meet Bhagwan. She entered the guru's apartment and waited against the back wall for him to appear. As she did, she took in the room. It was absolutely filled with books. She thought to herself that this must be a man who had endless knowledge. And then, 37-year-old Bhagwan walked into the room. He wore a white dress and shawl, with his long beard all the way down to his chest. Sheila was breathless. She couldn't explain why, but she was so moved by his presence that tears rolled down her cheeks. She had never felt such emotion before. Bhagwan opened his arms and smiled at her. Clearly, he had this effect on many people and knew just what to do. Sheila found herself stepping forward into his embrace. In that moment, she felt entirely fulfilled. Before we continue with Sheila's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. 
Now, Sheila's response to Bhagwan might seem overdramatic for a first meeting, but it could have been the result of guru syndrome. According to psychologist Steve Taylor, many disciples succumb to this, quote, unhealthy impulse to regress to a childlike state of unconditional devotion. For the new disciple, it's much like a parent-child relationship. They can put all responsibility for their life onto the guru and trust in them completely, rather than making mature, independent decisions. It's unhealthy, but it can be a very appealing state because it feels like everything is handled. For 16-year-old Sheila, she likely felt that she'd found a new father figure. She was growing up and would soon be an adult, forced to take on the outside world by herself. But now, she had Bhagwan to guide her, and their connection was immediate and intense. Sheila decided right then and there that she would do anything to make him happy, and in exchange, he'd steer her through life. But before she could fully devote herself to Bhagwan, her father wanted her to get a proper education. So in 1968, he sent 17-year-old Sheila to the U.S. to attend Montclair State College in New Jersey. Sheila was excited about her new adventure in the States. All her life, she'd heard about the American dream, about the land of promise and opportunity, and she was fascinated by the idea of freedom and equality between genders, which simply wasn't a reality in India. But then, of course, she arrived at school, and one of the first things she did was fall in love with 21-year-old Mark Harris Silverman. He was smart and made Sheila laugh like no one else could. And he was enthralled by her charms. She was brash and bold, and he'd never met another woman like her. At first, they bonded over simple things like movies and food. They shared their thoughts on life, and Sheila told him about her devotion to Bhagwan. Before long, the two were inseparable. There was just one problem. Mark had been living with Hodgkin's disease and didn't know if he had much time left. When he eventually told Sheila, she was shocked. She'd been dreaming of a life together, and now that was all ruined. But then Sheila surprised Mark. She didn't run away. Instead, she told him that she'd rather have a few short years with him than none at all. So they threw caution to the wind and got married. Then, after graduating in 1972, 22-year-old Sheila wanted to refocus on her spiritual studies. So she and Mark packed up their things and moved to India. There, Sheila reconnected with Bhagwan. In the four-year interim, he had published books and toured around the country, spreading his teachings. He was quickly becoming bigger than any rock star in India, capable of filling stadiums of 30,000 people. Bhagwan was now settled in Pune, where he had established his own ashram. His followers, called sannyasins, flocked by the hundreds to live there. By this stage, the guru was known for many things, but chief among them were his beliefs on free love and dynamic meditation, and how the two interconnected. 
When Sheila and Mark joined the ashram, there were rumors swirling around India about Bhagwan's teachings. Some swore by him, but others, particularly those with more traditional beliefs, were skeptical, if not downright horrified. In his dynamic meditation sessions, Bhagwan's quote-unquote therapists would lead a group through five different phases. Each 10-minute stage had to be completed in order to achieve maximum awareness or enlightenment. The first phase was all about fast, intense breathing, which was meant to purify the energy channels. Next, participants let it all out. They cried, danced, screamed, whatever they needed. Then in the third stage, they rapidly jumped up and down with raised hands, which supposedly awakened one's sexual energy. The fourth phase required everyone to stand perfectly still for 10 minutes. And then in the fifth and final phase, the individuals shared their energy with each other by dancing and celebrating. When described that way, it seems like a perfectly reasonable, if perhaps unorthodox, way of meditating. But these sessions sometimes became violent. According to a report by the New York Times, there were at least a few occasions where participants were beaten severely and encouraged to act out their most violent fantasies, including rape, to cleanse themselves of aggression. As these reports leaked to the public, Bhagwan supposedly put a stop to such intense sessions. There was to be no more violence, nor any tolerance for sexual assault. But the fact of the matter was, it had happened. And he had been okay with it, until he got caught. This was the environment that Sheila and Mark joined. It's likely that they knew about these accusations, but Sheila didn't mind. She believed that Bhagwan wanted to liberate everyone from their sexual repression and rid them of the taboos that held them back. She excused the violence as something that happened because people were just too excited. And for that, Bhagwan welcomed her and her husband with open arms. He gave them new names meant to signify the death of the old self and the rebirth of the new. From then on, Mark was Chinmaya and Sheila was Ma Anand Sheila. For Sheila, everything Bhagwan did was beyond reproach. He was the master, and anyone who followed him had to completely surrender their ego. According to her own autobiography, Sheila claimed she knew Bhagwan was being exploitative of his followers from the get-go, but that she was okay with it because she thought she gained more than she lost. Sheila had an uncanny ability to see right through Bhagwan, but she wasn't scared by what she saw. Instead, she grew more devoted to him. By her own account, she was completely in love with him. Theirs was never a sexual relationship, although Sheila acknowledged that if Bhagwan had demanded sex from her, she would have done it without hesitation. Instead, Sheila developed a different relationship with her guru. Despite being a devout follower, Sheila wasn't really interested in the meditation aspects of the movement. Surprisingly, this didn't bother Bhagwan. He appreciated the other skills she brought to the table. Not only was she smart and charismatic, she was also a master organizer. She had a way with people, a great sense for business, and an innate understanding of how to run his commune. And he needed her for all of those things. 
You see, he knew that most communes eventually failed because they never made any money. Gurus too often believed themselves above such capitalist notions. But Bhagwan knew the only way the commune would survive was to make money. And that's where Sheila came in. Up next, Sheila steps in to her power. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. After moving to Bhagwan's ashram in 1972, 22-year-old Sheila devoted herself to the guru. She quickly proved her usefulness and joined his inner circle. As the 70s continued, he gave her more and more responsibilities, and she became one of the high-ranking members of his commune. Sheila's main job was to streamline Bhagwan's business venture. While he spoke to his followers about enlightenment and free love, she made sure that everyone who came to visit was paying up. Sheila charged for everything, entrance to the ashram, different therapy groups, even to listen to Bhagwan speak. Their biggest moneymaker was meditation, which seemed to appeal particularly to Westerners. Sheila knew that they needed to cater to foreigners because many of them came with American dollars, which went a lot farther than the local rupees. And by 1980, the commune was rolling in millions and millions of dollars. As the commune headed towards bigger and better things, Bhagwan kept a close eye on Sheila. She knew he was watching her, testing her, but she never faltered under his gaze. She would do whatever it took to impress him, no matter his lofty ambitions. For some time now, Bhagwan had been formulating a plan. He wanted to build a city for 50,000 of his followers to create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world. But Bhagwan couldn't secure land in India. He sent delegates all over the country looking for the perfect place but they kept coming up against the Indian government. The higher-ups saw Bhagwan as a threat to Indian society and didn't want to see him amass any more power. These outside pressures were starting to encroach on life at the ashram, too. One day, Sheila was in the crowd of one of Bhagwan's lectures when a man suddenly stood up. 
Sheila watched him throw a knife straight toward the guru. Her breath caught, and for a moment she thought it was all over. But then the knife missed, just barely. It turned out that the would-be assassin was a fundamental Hindu who was upset by Bhagwan's teachings. He thought they were so offensive, he wanted the guru dead. With that in mind, Sheila and Bhagwan's other advisors felt that it might be time to leave India. At the very least, Bhagwan needed much better protection. Things couldn't continue like they were. One night, Bhagwan called 30-year-old Sheila to his room and asked her what she thought the commune should do. She answered with confidence. They should go to America. She had experience there from her school days, and she was convinced that the Constitution would protect their religion. That was exactly what Bhagwan wanted to hear. It had been one last test, and Sheila had passed. He reached out and put his hand on her head, and Sheila felt like she was 16 again. He told her that he was promoting her to be his new secretary, and she nearly cried. Then he told her to go look for their place in America. It was a shining moment in Sheila's life, but the light was dimmed by tragedy. Sheila's husband, 33-year-old Chinmaya, who'd been battling Hodgkin's disease for 13 years, finally passed away. Sheila was overcome with grief. She was so distraught that Bhagwan had his doctor sedate her. She slept for three straight days. When she finally woke up, Bhagwan told her, this chapter is finished. Now you bury yourself in the work. Luckily, Bhagwan had plenty for Sheila to distract herself with. First, she needed to find land in America like she had promised. Then she'd need to organize a way for him to get there. That wasn't as straightforward as it seemed. Bhagwan needed a visa to travel to the US, but they needed to keep his plans secret. Sheila feared that the Indian government would come after Bhagwan and his ashram, or that he might be the target of another assassination attempt she knew she needed to act quickly. Luckily, having so much on her plate helped her move past her husband's death. There was simply no time to grieve with such pressing matters at hand. Meanwhile, Bhagwan made another significant change in the organization. He took a vow of silence. He would speak to a select few people in private, but publicly, he said nothing. This decision left a gaping hole who was going to speak for Bhagwan if not himself? The answer, of course, was Sheila. In addition to her new duties as his personal secretary, she also became his spokesperson. In just a few months, Sheila had become the most powerful person in the commune besides Bhagwan himself. The only person she answered to was Bhagwan, and he had faith in her judgment. In fact, he trusted her so much that he gave her power of attorney over him. He was literally putting his life in her hands. Sheila swore to protect it with everything she had, and she knew that the best way to do that was to start fresh in a new country. So on June 1st, 1980, she orchestrated the move. Bhagwan left the ashram in the middle of the night. He didn't say goodbye to any of his followers, didn't leave any hint about where they were going. 
but Sheila knew it was all going according to plan. They were on their way to America. Sheila had found a place for them in Antelope, Oregon. At first glance, it might seem an odd choice. It was an isolated town in a rural farming area, and it had a population of no more than 50 people. It was a predominantly, if not wholly, conservative Christian community. The residents had been doing things their way all their lives, and change was not on their agenda. Unfortunately for them, Sheila was about to steamroll through town. Using Bagwan's vast cash reserves, she purchased Big Muddy Ranch, an 80,000-acre property just north of town. Then she and 100 devoted sannyasins got to work building their city. However, they couldn't just declare they were a city and make it so. But after reading up on Oregon state law, Sheila knew that they could make their land its own city. All they needed was 150 U.S. citizens to vote to incorporate. That was easy enough, and she started registering sannyasins as residents in Oregon. The people of Antelope wanted to put a stop to this. Despite Sheila's claims that she and Bhagwan's followers just wanted to live in peace on their own land, the antelopers were skeptical. They didn't want these strange sannyasins in their town. They didn't understand them, and they didn't care to. As far as they were concerned, this was an invasion, and they wanted to stop it before it got out of hand. But Sheila had no intention of letting some Oregonian farmers get in her way. Bhagwan had tasked her with building his dream, and failure was not an option. So when the day came, Sheila and 150 U.S.-born sannyasins marched down to the polling station and cast their votes. And with that, she got her first real victory. Big Muddy Ranch would henceforth be known as Rajneesh Param. This official distinction gave the new city, and by extension, Sheila, the power to do many things, like issuing building permits and establishing their own law enforcement. But Sheila maintained her practiced mantra for the press. They weren't there to bother anybody. They just wanted to build a utopia based on love, compassion, and sharing, rather than ownership and greed. They wanted to be an example for the world. Behind closed doors, Sheila was a bit more pragmatic. While the sannyasins cared a great deal about the spiritual aspects of Rajneesh Param, Sheila was more focused on the practicalities. She didn't want any lazy people or, God forbid, more meditators joining the city yet. She needed workers, people who could help get the city off the ground. And she got that. In those early months, there were about 100 devoted sannyasins on the ranch who were willing to do anything Sheila told them. After all, she spoke for Bhagwan. So the sannyasins got to it. They labored day and night, 16-hour workdays, three or four shifts in a row. 
but no one complained. They were all convinced they were creating something exceptional. In a matter of months, they'd completed an impressive amount. There were small A-frame houses, a meditation hall that could hold 10,000, and even a shopping center. Plus, they had all the necessities for a city, electricity, plumbing, roads, a dam. They got the land into farming condition, and they even built their own airport. Finally, Sheila decided that they were ready. It was time to welcome Bhagwan. In August 1981, Sheila waited at the airstrip, racked with nerves. She wanted everything to be perfect for Bhagwan's arrival. But as his plane approached in the sky above, a peace fell over her. She'd created something beautiful in Rajneesh Param, and she couldn't wait to share it with her master. The plane landed, and Bhagwan emerged, taking in his city for the first time. He was still practicing his vow of silence, but he didn't need words to express how much he loved it. He greeted his followers, and then he turned to Sheila. No one was prouder of what they had accomplished than her. The city was everything he had wanted, and she had given it to him. Meanwhile, the citizens of Antelope were horrified by the developments taking place just outside of town. They were suspicious of the Sannyasins and their whole free love movement. And then the documentary came out. Ashram in Pune was an inside look at what really went on in the Sannyasins' group therapy sessions. It's unclear whether the director was given permission to film or if he snuck a camera in. But either way, what he cut together shocked the people of Oregon. On camera, a group of naked sannyasins go through the stages of their new age therapy, at different points screaming, tackling each other, sobbing, having group sex, and then, at the end, dancing. That was it for the people of Antelope. In their eyes, the sannyasins were all a part of some satanic sex cult, and they wanted them gone. Now. It's important to note that Bhagwan did preach free love. His followers often had several partners, hung out nude, and generally had a much more laid-back attitude towards sex. However, like the accusations made years prior, many sannyasins said what was seen on film was a rarity and not how all group sessions went. Still, there was a growing fear in the U.S. about cults. Just two years earlier, cult leader Jim Jones had orchestrated a mass murder-suicide. For the citizens of Antelope, Rajneesh Param felt a lot like Jonestown 2.0. There was a charismatic leader with hundreds of devoted followers hanging on his every word. And together they were creating an isolated community in the middle of nowhere. Whether right or wrong, their fears didn't feel unfounded. But there was also a degree of xenophobia and Mayflower mentality. The idea that the Antelope residents had settled the land first, therefore they owned it. And that only made things worse. According to psychologist Oksana Yakushko, demands on immigrants to assimilate into the dominant culture can result in increased cultural confusion and isolation as they attempt to hold on to their sense of cultural identity. For the sannyasins, many of whom were immigrants like Sheila, they just wanted to protect their way of life. 
but the constant derision and outright hatred from their new U.S. neighbors weighed on them. And Yakushko's research suggests that even perceived discrimination can contribute to psychological distress. No doubt many sannyasins were struggling with the hostilities. And so, as things got worse, they leaned on Sheila more and more, because out of all of them, she seemed to be able to bear the brunt without breaking. But the fight was only just beginning. Soon the antelopers filed a lawsuit challenging the legality of Rajneesh Puram's existence. Their argument was that farmland in Oregon had to be used only for farming. Therefore, everything else that the sannyasins built had to go. It seemed like a smart strategy at first, but no one anticipated the strength of the Rajneeshis, or more specifically, Sheila. When she caught wind of this new ploy, Sheila was irate. She saw it as an attack on their rights as citizens in the state. She got defensive, even aggressive. She told the press that if they came for Rajneesh Puram, they'd have to go through her. She said, I will paint their bulldozers with my blood. And then she decided to strike back. If they were going to take away her city, she'd take away theirs. So she launched something of a hostile takeover of Antelope. There were plenty of properties for sale in town, and Sheila started buying them all and moving Rajneesh Puram's business operations there. Antelopers wanted to fight back, but when Sheila walked in with a check for $50,000, well, that was hard to resist. A lot of them needed the money. And if they didn't sell then at their price, Sheila insisted they would sell later at hers. One way or another, Sheila was going to get her way. She always did. Up next, the violence escalates into all-out war. Now back to the story. In 1983, tensions were high in the town of Antelope, Oregon. On one side, Antelope citizens openly threatened that they were going to shoot the followers of Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. On the other side, 33-year-old Ma Anand Sheila had her fellow sannyasins harassing the people of Antelope, shining lights into their windows in the middle of the night and filming their every move. But the disgruntled citizens of Antelope weren't the only thing Sheila had to worry about. One night in July of 1983, Sheila awoke with a start and sat straight up in bed. It was the middle of the night, but she had a feeling that something was wrong. She tried to get back to sleep, but no matter what she did, she couldn't shake the sense that there was trouble. Then, just a few hours later, a call came in from Portland where Bhagwan owned a hotel. At any given time, 50 or so sannyasins were staying there, and they weren't exactly popular. Sheila's heart sank as she heard that the hotel had been bombed. Then two more less than an hour later. All 60 sannyasins were safely evacuated, and miraculously, no one was killed. But the message was clear. Someone wanted the Rajneeshis out of Oregon. 
But Sheila refused to be scared or intimidated. Instead, the attack taught her something entirely different. It was up to her to protect their community because no one else would. The very next day, Sheila and her fellow sannyasins went out and bought weapons for the ranch pistols, automatic assault rifles, and hand grenades. If their enemies wanted a war, that's what they were going to get. The days of peaceful existence were over. Sheila didn't just want to be prepared, she wanted to fight back. So she made sure that a whole army of Rajneeshis was prepared to handle the guns they bought. She orchestrated large-scale shooting practices and ran drills until her people were working as a unit. For Sheila, this was about self-preservation, and she had zero tolerance for any Rajneeshi who disagreed with her or for whispers of dissent. It became clear quite quickly If you obeyed Sheila's orders, you were rewarded. If you didn't, you'd be on the outside looking in, cut off from Bhagwan forever. Predictably, this growing power soon went to Sheila's head. What started out as a plan for protection turned into outright aggression. She didn't want to just have their separate city exist alongside the locals. She wanted to totally destroy the Antelope residents, who had been such a thorn in her side. So when two seats opened up on city council, she filled them with her people. And just like that, she had control of the council, and it was game over. They voted to change the name of Antelope to Rajneesh, and the once sleepy farming town was absorbed into the Sanyasin's territory. After they changed the town name, they changed everything else, too. Street signs went up with new names, businesses were revamped, and an empty lot was even turned into a nude sunbathing park. But Sheila wasn't just in the business of being petty. She also made more sinister changes, like establishing the Peace Force, a police unit that started surveilling the Antelope citizens day and night. Unsurprisingly, Sheila's hostile takeover got all sorts of national attention. She welcomed the press. As far as she was concerned, all publicity was good publicity, especially when it was free. On air, she was outrageous and feisty. She threw around swear words like she couldn't help it, and she always gave provocative sound bites. She acted like participating in the media circus was just something she had to do, but there was definitely a sense that she really enjoyed it. And all the attention played right into her inflated ego. Luckily for Sheila, Bhagwan was pleased with her performance. After all, the more press they got, the more books he sold, and the farther his teachings spread. By this time, there were communes all over the world, everywhere from India to Australia to Italy. Nearly half a million people were following Bhagwan's teachings, and those followers brought more and more money every day. By this stage, the Rajneesh movement had more than it knew what to do with. Over the past couple of years, Sheila had set up different corporations and foundations to spread their assets around. All told, they had a total of $65 million. But the better off the Rajneeshis were, the bigger a target they became. And by the middle of 1983, the government finally got involved. 
Leading the charge was Dave Frohmeyer, Oregon's attorney general. He filed a suit on behalf of Oregon residents, claiming that the existence of Rajneesh Param violated the constitutional separation of church and state. In the U.S., a city can't be governed by a religion, but the sannyasins setup sure seemed to fit that bill. As the state began to investigate, Bhagwan retreated from the spotlight even further, likely to protect himself. He decided to continue his vow of silence from within his own home and rarely emerged to interact with his followers. So that left Sheila alone to speak to the Rajneeshis. They looked to her for guidance, and she gladly stepped up to the plate. For all intents and purposes, she was leading the commune all by herself. And soon, people started becoming more devoted to her than they were to Bhagwan. Part of this was that some of the sannyasins believed Sheila was now the only true connection to Bhagwan and wanted to live vicariously through her. But some Rajneeshis simply felt loyalty to Sheila. She was the one they interacted with, the one who was there for them every day. They believed that she had the commune's best interests at heart, and they were willing to follow any order she gave them. And she was happy to abuse that power to get what she wanted. One of the obstacles she was eager to clear from her path was Wasco County. She had already taken care of Antelope, but now the nearby county had set their sights on shutting her down. A slew of new anti-Rajneeshi officials were set to be elected, and Sheila was determined to stop it. She felt like she couldn't escape the persecution. As soon as she handled one enemy, another took its place. Frustrated but determined, she decided to revisit her old playbook. She would simply fill the board with sannyasins like she'd done in Antelope. The only problem was she needed new voters to register in this Wasco County. So she devised a plan. She sent Rajneeshis to every major city across the U.S. They visited homeless shelters and handed out bus tickets, offering a free ride to Rajneesh Puram to anyone who wanted it. Sure enough, plenty accepted the invitation. In less than a month, nearly 3,500 homeless people arrived at the city, and eventually that number grew to 6,000. Sheila was ecstatic. In her wildest imagination, she'd never anticipated the scheme working so well. She was convinced that she had won once again. But the Wasco County Election Board had a trump card to play. They simply banned any new residents from registering to vote, making all her new citizens absolutely useless to Sheila. Now Sheila was up against a wall, and she was absolutely livid. She believed that voting was a fundamental right protected by the Constitution, which meant that the county was openly discriminating against U.S. citizens. She wanted to strike back, to hit them where it hurt. So she called a meeting with her most devoted followers to discuss other ways to win this election. With fiery rhetoric, she decried their persecution and swore that she would do anything to fight for their rights. The group was riled up, hanging on Sheila's every word. 
She was tired of playing nice, and she was setting the stage to take far more drastic measures. But she knew that her fellow Rajneeshis were ready to go to war with her, ready to do whatever it took. According to anthropologist Martha Newson, what was taking place in Rajneeshpuram was a phenomenon known as identity fusion. This is when a person's sense of self becomes one with their group identity. And once this happens, these individuals are far more likely to engage in personally costly pro-group behaviors and are even willing to put their lives at risk to save other members. Whether or not she understood exactly what she was doing, Sheila was taking advantage of that particular phenomenon. She had her fellow sannyasins right where she wanted them. So, finally, she announced her new idea, the one that would change everything. She wanted to get their enemies out of the way once and for all. And there was only one option left. They had to kill them. And she knew just how to do it. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with Part 2, where Sheila carries out the largest bioterrorist attack the United States had ever seen. For more information on Sheila Bernsteel, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary series Wild Wild Country, directed by McLean Way and Chapman Way, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new True Crime Limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.